Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today we're going to take a look back at one of my favorite movies from one of my favorite filmmakers. Albert Brooks is the filmmaker, and the movie is his brilliant 1985 comedy, Lost in America. You're just nervous about tomorrow. You'll get the promotion, we'll move into the new house, and we'll be happy. Okay? You should hear your voice. It just fills this room with excitement. This is David and Linda Howard. They're happily married. I want to have sex with you right here. Right now, right here. And they're about to have a day. This is it. They'll remember the rest of their lives. David, you're fired. Fired? Oh, I'm fired! Now, they're going to drop out. We have to touch Indians. We have to see the mountains and the prairies and the whole rest of that song. Set out to find the American dream. Well, the movie you're basing your whole life on Easy Rider, they had no nest egg. They had a giant nest egg. They had all this cocaine. And wind up lost in America. To America, look out. Here we come. <laughs> Get your motor running. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Head out on the highway. Do you have a reservation? Well, I just dropped out of society. I kind of live moment to moment. I really don't do reservation things anymore. What do you think? I think if Liberace should get children, this would be their room. We're looking for adventure And whatever comes our way How much is left in the nest egg? Nothing. Well, get, give or take a thousand. Give or take a thousand. As the boldest experiment in advertising history, you give us our money back. We're finished talking. I've lost a woman. A whole woman. Born to be wild. Oh. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> Any high-paying jobs in the immediate area? You wouldn't be interested in it. Well, you don't know me. I might love it. What is it? Walk your bike. According to walk your bike. Dumb frillo pad, fathead. Walk your bike. Kill the child. The Geffen Company presents Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty, Lost in America. Great movie. You got to see it. It's historic. For many people today, they only know Albert Brooks as the voice of Marlin, the clownfish father from the Pixar movies, Finding Nemo, and Finding Dory. But for some of us, Albert Brooks has been entertaining us on television and in movies for almost 50 years. Albert Brooks was born, believe it or not, as Albert Einstein in Beverly Hills in July 1947, the youngest of four sons born to comedic actor Harry Einstein and his wife. Albert's oldest brother, Charles, was a novelist who penned the book The Bloody Spur, which would become the basis for the 1956 Fritz Lang movie While the City Sleeps. Another brother, Bob Einstein, would become an actor and comedian himself who would find fame in the late 1970s for his most famous character, Super Dave Osborne. Growing up in the Einstein house meant being in regular combat with his dad and brothers over the dinner table to make each other laugh. We all seized on every opportunity to make humor out of what was going on, Bob Einstein would tell a reporter in a 1997 People magazine profile of his younger brother. 
I think my mom must have left the table an average of twice a month. When Albert was 11, his father would have a heart attack and die during a Friars Club roast of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, which would deeply affect both Bob and Albert. Bob would later tell Jerry Seinfeld during an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee that he had been highly offended that Milton Berle and George Jessel had performed their regular comedy routines at the eulogies for his father, which turned him off from being a performer for many years. Albert would offer up his own eulogy of sorts for his father in his 1991 movie Defending Your Life. When Brooks finds himself in the purgatory-like Judgment City, where he has to give cause as to why he should be allowed to go to heaven. Oh, there's a nice-looking young man over there. Hi, how'd you die? On stage, like you. <laughs> Pretty funny. Maybe you should come up here, huh? No, thank you. No, of course he doesn't want to come up here. You know why? Because this is very hard work. But I love to do it, and I love you little brains. Matter of fact, have you heard any of you little brain jokes lately? Hi. Hi. I know you, right? I hope so. Who are you? I'm Julia. Hi. I'm Daniel. Hi. You know me? You like these? Well, I thought I did. You weren't in the bus, were you? What bus? I hit a bus. Oh, no, I don't think so. Oh, good. Sit down. I'm sorry. You really look so familiar to me. Really? Yeah. Maybe because I'm the only man in here under 100. Yeah. Could be it. <clears throat> Check the time. You know, I want to tell you a true story. This really happened. About three months ago, these six dead people come in. Now, I know how you Obviously, guys love Obviously, humor has nothing to do with brain size. That's adorable about you. I like it. Obviously. But they come in here, order something. Do you want to take a walk or something? Or... Really do you want to stay? Neat, see the show? Neat, well, I have to. That's my dad. All of a sudden, By the time Albert Einstein was 19, he had already dropped out of his studies at Carnegie Mellon University to become a stand-up comic, and he'd also dropped the Einstein name for Brooks. By the 1970s, Brooks had quickly become one of the rising stars in the new world of postmodern comedy, becoming a regular on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. His onstage character would become a familiar one over the years, a narcissistic, nervous comedian whose performances would always go wrong. In 1972, for the PBS comedy series the Great American Dream Machine, Brooks would write, direct, and star in his first short film, The Famous Comedian School, where Brooks would give the audience a tour of a comedy school. While The Great American Dream Machine would only last one season on the air, despite a fan base that included John Lennon, Brooks would be able to parlay his success on the show and on appearances on The Flip Wilson Show and other variety shows of the day into a recording contract, and he would record two albums in three years, one of which would get a Grammy nomination for Best Comedy Album. And then in 1975, two things would change the direction of his career and of entertainment as a whole. First, he'd get a call from Martin Scorsese, who had seen Brooks on television several times and offered Brooks a role in the director's next movie, Taxi Driver. Brooks was 28, and would get third billing in his very first movie. Brooks would shoot his part of the film in the spring of 1975. Around the same time, the NBC broadcast network, looking for something new and different, and sensing Brooks was about to break big, 
would offer him his own variety comedy show, doing whatever he wanted, which they would schedule to air Saturday nights at 11.30 p.m. Except Brooks wanted to focus on becoming a better writer and director so he could soon make his own movies. It's one of the reasons he wanted to work with Scorsese. So he would politely decline NBC's offer. But he would suggest that, instead of having him host a weekly comedy variety show at 11.30 p.m. on Saturday nights, maybe they should do a show that had a rotating series of guest hosts and musical guests. NBC liked the idea, and they still wanted Brooks to be a part of it. So Brooks would make a deal with the network to provide six short comedy movies to air on the show during the first season. That show? NBC's Saturday Night, which would feature in its cast one of Brooks's co-stars from The Great American Dream Machine, Chevy Chase. Four of the shorts would air during the first four episodes of NBC's Saturday Night and would run an average of five minutes, except for one called Heart Surgery, which at 13 minutes was so long, NBC actually put a commercial break halfway through the movie. Lauren Michaels didn't want to air it at all because of the length of the movie, along with the commercial breaks bookending the movie as well as that mid-movie commercial break, would mean that viewers would be away from Chevy and Johnny and Danny and Gilda and the rest of the not-ready-for-prime-time players for nearly a quarter of the entire show. The only reason it even aired was due to the insistence of that week's host, Rob Reiner, who was a good friend of Albert Brooks. And those shorts were brilliant. Even at the age of seven and eight, when they first aired, I could understand the jokes, understand the references, and would have trouble going to sleep after they aired because I kept making myself laugh all night, quoting the lines I could remember. My favorite of the six was the final one, the National Audience Research Institute, where Brooks works with a group of doctors, including his brother Cliff, and future Oscar-winning filmmaker James L. Brooks to figure out what people don't like about him and how he can change that. After such moments as hooking a viewer up to a complicated computer setup to monitor their reactions to Brooks's previously aired short, and having the doctors observe Brooks arguing with a man who does not find him funny at all, the short ends with the doctors handing Brooks an 800-page report to which Brooks promises to have a friend he trusts put it into a synopsis for him. NBC's Saturday Night would evolve greatly over its first season, letting go of many of the initial elements that maybe didn't work as well as hoped, including a very bizarre segment with Jim Henson and the Muppets that was definitely not their best work. Brooks, being an L.A. native, was 3,000 miles away working independently of Lorne Michaels and the rest of the show. So he was never featuring any of the cast members of the show in his movies or interacting with the cast in Studio 8H. But those shorts would get Brooks the offer he had been waiting more than a decade for, the chance to make his own feature film. 1979's Real Life was a spoof of a popular 1973 PBS television program called An American Family, which followed the lives of the Loud family, a white, upper-middle-class family in Santa Barbara. Brooks would direct and, with Monica Johnson, a writer on Laverne and Shirley, 
and Harry Shearer, an actor, writer, comedian friend of Brooks's, would write the screenplay. Brooks would also star as Albert Brooks, a documentary filmmaker who wants to spend a full year with a family filming their every moment. The Jaeger family, led by Charles Grodin and Francis Lee McCain, finds their lives more than just mildly disrupted by the filming crew, and Brooks slowly starts to lose his mind as the project becomes ever more problematic, leading to its crazy ending and hilarious denouement. Real Life would open at the Cinema 2 in New York City on March 2nd, 1979, and at the Bruin in Westwood three weeks later. The critical reaction to the film was mostly positive, receiving praise from Gene Siskel, Janet Maslin of the New York Times, Frank Rich of Time Magazine, Playboy's Bruce Williamson, David Anson of Newsweek, the New York Daily News, The Village Voice, Women's Wear Daily, and even from Human Behavior Magazine. Roger Ebert hated the film, feeling it was a good idea but not enough for a full-length feature film, but amongst critics he was definitely in the minority. For audiences, however, they mostly agreed with him. While the film would eventually expand to 11 screens in the greater New York City metropolitan area, in Los Angeles, Chicago, and most other major cities, it would only play on one screen during its run in that area. It would be out of theaters before Memorial Day, the official start of the summer movie season back then, grossing less than $365,000 after 10 weeks. Now, I would usually play you the trailer or a television commercial for that movie, Real Life, but I can't, because Paramount didn't create a commercial for the film. And the trailer makes absolutely no sense in an audio-only format like a podcast, as it doesn't feature any footage from the film itself. Instead, Brooks sits at a desk in what appears to be a home office and tells the audience watching that his movie is so exciting he's going to tell you about it in 3D. The screen then switches over to an old-time red-and-blue anaglyph image where Brooks spends time doing silly things for the camera because the trailer is in 3D, ending with world champion paddleball player Randy Brown coming into the room and you can guess how that ends. It's hilarious, but it doesn't really tell you anything about the movie itself. Brooks would have a memorable moment on screen as Goldie Hawn's husband in 1980's Private Benjamin, playing her new husband who dies on their wedding night during sex. He's gone from the film before the end of the first reel, but it would attach his name to another hit film, which seemed like a good thing for Columbia Pictures who was about to release Brooks's second movie as a writer, director, and star a couple months later. I don't think that we should go out anymore. I mean, I, I just think it's over. Okay, it's over again. No, not again. This is it. This is the last time. It's for real. You've heard of a no-win situation, haven't you? No. Really, no? You've never heard of one? Vietnam? This? After Robert broke up with a girl of his dreams... Don't call me either, okay? Pop dead. Very sweet. Thanks. He was single. There's 10 million people in this city alone. How difficult can it be to find one perfect person? It's not that big a deal. He was free. A call. A call. Mr. Popularity. Mr. Popularity. Hello. He took vitamins. 
You broke up with somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, you're gonna need C, magnesium. He started running. One, two, three. I don't even miss her. Two, three. He started dating. Ellen, Ellen, out of the past. Ellen, Petey, Ellen. He had everything a modern guy could want. Robert Cole, everything you do from this moment on will only make you feel better. He felt awful. I'm alone now. I don't want to play Lou. What am I going to do? Hug myself? Please, I don't... Okay. Got another one. Columbia Pictures presents a film by Albert Brooks, Modern Romance. What are you doing here? You're going out on a date, aren't you? Robert, I'm closing the door. Okay. You two didn't get along. You said it yourself. All you ever did was fight. So who is he? You slept with him? twice I'm going home all right hold it it's all we ever did i'm telling you we fought and fought and then we had great sex we never really could talk yesterday you told me you didn't want to see me cheap talk i love you very much mary i know you do oh i know you do i guess that's the same as i love you too sure albert brooks and katherine harold in modern romance if it isn't love what is it Mary. This time, Brooks plays Robert, a Hollywood film editor who is having relationship problems with his banker girlfriend, Mary, while he is working on editing a science fiction movie starring George Kennedy. Robert and Mary constantly fight and break up, get back together, fight and break up again, get back together again. And Robert is tired of it, so he breaks up with Mary for what he says will be the final time under the belief that the perfect person is waiting out there for him. Now, if you know Albert Brooks, and you know his co-star, Catherine Harold, you know she's not the one who is out of his league. The film also features the late, great Bruno Kirby as Robert's co-editor, Jay, and a rare acting turn from friend and regular collaborator, director James L. Brooks, as the director of the movie Robert and Jay are working on as well as Albert's brother, Bob Einstein, and Harlem Globetrotter legend, Meadowlark Lemon, and, of course, George Kennedy as an outrageously heightened version of himself. Like Brooks's comedy routines, short films, and debut feature, Modern Romance is full of his unique mix of dark humor, bizarre relationship dust-ups about the most mundane things, and observations about the human condition that are as pointed as they are uncomfortably on target. Like real life, Modern Romance would first open in New York City at the Cinema 2. Like real life, the critical consensus would praise the work of a new comedy genius. And like real life, audiences weren't quite sure what to make of that genius. While the film would open strong at the Cinema 2 on March 13, 1981, grossing more than $18,000 in three days from that single screen, the film would not find any kind of mass acceptance, grossing just $2.8 million after 42 weeks of release. But one person who did love the film, according to Albert Brooks, was Stanley Kubrick, who called from England after watching the movie one afternoon and quizzed Brooks on how he made the movie. I always wanted to make a movie about jealousy, Brooks says Kubrick told him. Brooks wouldn't be seen on screen for nearly two and a half years until he was featured with Dan Aykroyd in the opening scene of the ill-fated Twilight Zone movie in the summer of 1983. He would follow that up with another small role 
as a favor to James L. Brooks in what would end up being the Best Picture Oscar recipient that year, Terms of Endearment. And in 1984, he would co-star in the wholly unnecessary remake of Preston Sturgis's classic 1948 comedy, Unfaithfully Yours, which was originally set up to star Peter Sellers before his untimely passing, and ended up starring Dudley Moore, who, while definitely funny in his own way, is no genius like Sellers. So, what was Brooks doing with most of his time after Modern Romance? I'm glad you asked. He was setting up his third film as director, and for me, his best, Lost in America. Lost in America was written by Brooks and his regular writing partner, Monica Johnson, in the spring and summer of 1981, while they were racking up accolades for their writing on Modern Romance, and was originally set up to start filming in the fall of 1981, with ABC Motion Pictures, the feature production arm of the television network, at a cost of around $4 million. But ABC decided they were going to support the more broadly funny films of Gary Marshall's Young Doctors in Love and Michael Miller's National Lampoon-branded film Class Reunion, the first film written by one of the magazine's most talented writers, John Hughes. Now, what's funny about that is that both of those films, Class Reunion and Young Doctors in Love, cost 6 to $8 million each to produce, nearly double what it would have cost them to make Lost in America. It would take a couple of years, but Brooks would finally find someone willing to take a chance on his movie about a yuppie couple in Los Angeles who, after the husband doesn't get the promotion at work he is expecting, quit their lives, buy a Winnebago camper, and decide to live as free spirits roaming America. That person was music executive-turned-film producer David Geffen, who had his own distribution deal at Warner Brothers Pictures under his own Geffen Pictures label. And by 1984, he had already helped to bring to the screen Robert Towns' sports drama Personal Best and Risky Business. Geffen was about to go into production with another risky comedy, the Martin Scorsese film After Hours, but he'd be willing to put up $2 million of the Lost in America budget and have the film released through his Warner's deal if Brooks could find the other $2 million. He would, and the film would start casting in the fall of 1983. Brooks would, of course, be playing the lead male role of David Howard, the L.A. ad man who loses his shit in front of his boss when he learns he's being given the co-lead spot on a major advertising account instead of the promotion to senior vice president he was expecting. I'm sure you don't want to blow eight years with this company. Fuck you. David, you're fired. Fired? Oh, I'm fired. Oh, this is great. How dare you? I want my eight years back. I wasted my youth for you. I'm wasted. I'm over. Come on. I want them back. I'm going to stand in this office until you give them back to me. Except Brooks didn't actually want to star in the movie this time. Like many others in Hollywood, past and present, he actively pursued Bill Murray to play the lead role. But Murray was already committed to shooting Ghostbusters in New York, when Brooks would be shooting Lost in America in Los Angeles. For the character of his wife, Linda, who works in human resources at a local department store, Brooks would cast Julie Haggerty, the star of both airplane films, and Woody Allen's A Midsummer Night's sex comedy. 
Linda is supposed to be David's rock, the more level-headed part of the couple who should have been able to talk David out of this mess. But sensing his enthusiasm, she agrees to sell their house and all their assets, buy an RV, and drop out of society. You know, like Easy Rider. They leave Los Angeles with $100,000 or so as their nest egg, with their first stop being Las Vegas, where things don't go so good for them. She's been here all night. She's not on a lucky streak. I think you should talk to her. How much has she lost? Talk to her. How much? Talk. Come on. Come on. The man says you're not on a lucky streak. What, man? Right over here. He says you've lost. I was down earlier, but come on. And you're up I'm now? Gonna, I'm, no, I'm still down, but I'm going to hit. No. Uh, how down but, are David, you? David, you're going to bring me bad luck now. Well, Stop it. Come you've on. Already got 22. 22. Come on. 22. Yeah. 22. Yeah. $35. We're up. We're up. We're still down. How down? Down. How 22 down. down. 22. How down is she? Down. Come on. 22. How down are you? Down. How down. much have you lost? Everything. What does that mean? Everything. No, what do you mean? Everything you on mean? 22 and make it happen for me. Why the 22, hell are you betting 22. all that on one number? On, Where did you get that number? What is 22? 22? Come on, bet. Stop betting Come 22. On, Double zero. Shit. You lost. It's gone. 22. What do you mean? 22. Two, you two, have no more money. Two, Stop it. 20, There's two, no more money two, there. Stop it. Ever the ad man, David has a talk with the casino manager, played by director Gary Marshall, where he thinks he can convince them to do something radical as an advertising gimmick. As the boldest experiment in advertising history, you give us our money back. I beg your pardon? Give us our money back. Think of the publicity. The Hilton Hotels has these billboards all over Los Angeles where the winners of these slot machine jackpots their faces are all over la and i know that works i've seen people at corners look up and say maybe i'll go to the hilton well you give us our money back uh, I, I i don't even know now because i'm just coming off the top of my head but a visual where if we had a billboard and the desert inn handed us our nest egg back this gives the desert inn really vegas is not associated with feeling well first of all those people on those signs they won you lost and the rest of the movie sees David and Linda try to deal with the reality of dropping out of society without any kind of safety net. Brooks and his team would begin filming Lost in America in early December 1983 in Los Angeles. The film would mostly shoot in chronological order, moving from Los Angeles to Las Vegas for two weeks of filming at the Desert Inn Casino and Hotel. For six of those days, the production would shoot in the middle of the night while the casino was open, but sparsely populated with gamblers. Then the company would move on to the Hoover Dam for a few days, then to Arizona for a week, and eventually Brooks and Haggerty would drive the Winnebago from New Mexico to New York City over the course of three weeks with a skeleton crew to film the montage sequence that closes the film. When the movie was released in the theaters in February of 1985, critics once again embraced Brooks and his film, with many of them recognizing it as a satire of the Reagan-era baby boomer values that were becoming the status quo in America at the time. Ronald Reagan had been elected to a second term as president while the film was in post-production, by the biggest landslide since Franklin Roosevelt beat Alf Landon in 1936. The modern American conservative movement was in full swing, and there was probably no better filmmaker at the time to comment on the absurdity of the modern American conservative dream in 1985 than Albert Brooks. 
Janet Maslin, in her review of the film for the New York Times, would nail why the comedies of Albert Brooks might never become crossover hits. If Mr. Brooks isn't often laugh-out-loud funny, she wrote, that's largely because so much of what he has to say is true. But that wasn't going to stop Geffen and Warner Brothers from making a full-court press. Sort of. Lost in America would be Brooks's third film to open at the Cinema 2 in Manhattan, but it would also open in nine other theaters in Nassau and Suffolk counties in New York, as well as in New Jersey and Connecticut. After four weeks, the film would only be playing in two theaters in New York City and would already have grossed more than $100,000. It would open in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Chicago on March 15th. By mid-April, Lost in America would be playing in 305 theaters, making it the widest release of one of his films to date. When the film left theaters in the late fall, it would have grossed more than $10.18 million, nearly quadruple what Modern Romance had made four years earlier. Undoubtedly, the film would have likely grossed more had Bill Murray accepted the role of David Howard, but he would have likely brought a different kind of energy to the role. A confident braggadocio that doesn't give a fuck what you think instead of a nebbish semi-swagger willing to meekishly capitulate if there's even a chance to get back what you lost. At the end of the year, Brooks and Johnson would be awarded the Best Screenplay Award from the National Society of Film Critics and be nominated for the same award from the New York Film Critics Circle, which would lose to Woody Allen and the Purple Rose of Cairo. When the Academy Award nominations for 1985 were announced, there would be no nominations for Brooks or the film. One of the few things I disliked growing up as a teenager in Santa Cruz in the mid-1980s was how we'd often have to wait months to see some movies as studios slowly expanded the non-blockbusters out across the country, sometimes completely missing our little corner of the world, even though we had no less than 24 available first-run movie screens between Santa Cruz, Scotts Valley, Capitola, and Aptos. Even though Lost in America had opened in New York in mid-February and in San Francisco in mid-March, a print of Lost in America wouldn't make its way to the 41st Avenue Playhouse in Capitola until May 3rd, two and a half months later, and at the tail end of the movie's theatrical release pattern. So even though I was five weeks away from graduating high school, and preparing to move back to Los Angeles as soon as I did graduate, I made damn sure I got myself to the theater and saw it on opening night. Because that's what movie-crazy 17-year-olds who wanted to become filmmakers did. I couldn't chance not seeing the film because I waited for a week or two. Not that I needed to worry. Lost in America would play for several weeks at the 41st, and I'd end up seeing it a second time with my friends before it left, and before I left home the day after I graduated. I'd watched the film a couple more times over the years, when I could afford cable movie channels and it happened to be on, but it had been at least 15 to 20 years since I had last seen it, until about two weeks ago. Even though I had purchased the Criterion Blu-ray of it the week it came out in 2017. I needed to take a break from catching up with the potential Oscar nominees one night, and I just grabbed it and popped it in. And it's still a great movie today, far removed from 80s consumerism and conservatism, yet still sadly topical today. Brooks was in fine form, 
and Julie Haggerty was never better. I'm not sure as to why she didn't have a bigger career, but she was one of the best comedic actors of the decade. Ironically, the following night, we watched the new Frances McDormand film Nomadland, which made for an interesting double feature, flip sides of the same coin. People who became nomads because they didn't get what they wanted from time, and people who became nomads because life had already taken everything from them. It would make a great pairing for some intelligent repertory theater booker. As Brooks often did and would continue to do for most of his career, he'd take a few years off before coming back, sometimes as an actor in someone else's film and sometimes in his own. In 1987, he would find himself in the unusual position of being cast as part of a love triangle when he accepted the role of the cynical Washington, D.C.-based network television reporter Aaron Altman in James L. Brooks's follow-up to Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News. His Aaron might not have become the network anchor he wanted to be, and he might have lost Holly Hunter to William Hurt, but Brooks would find himself nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, as well as nominated for both Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor by the National Society of Film Critics. So, what do you do when you've just starred in a hit film and got nominated for an Academy Award? If you're Albert Brooks, you wait more than three years to show up on screen again. 1991's Defending Your Life would end up becoming a bigger hit than his previous directing effort, in large part due to the presence of Meryl Streep as his character's love interest. It's a wonderful and consistently hilarious movie about what happens to us after we die and how we can change even after death. And its impressive supporting cast, including Rip Torn, Lee Grant, and Buck Henry, are featured in some of their best roles. And there's a great cameo from Shirley MacLaine that'll force you to pause the movie so you can catch your breath without missing the next moment. Brooks would continue to expand his resume with a number of great roles for other directors, including Steven Soderbergh in Out of Sight and Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. But he'd become best known and most beloved, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, for his voice role as Merlin the Clownfish in Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. He'd make a few more movies as director, including the 1996 comedy drama Mother, which would feature Debbie Reynolds in her first starring role in a movie since 1971's What's the Matter with Helen? And that would help propel the film to a nearly $20 million gross, the highest in Brooks's directing career. But his next two films, 1999's The Muse with Sharon Stone, Andy McDowell, and Jeff Bridges, and 2005's Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World, would neither capture the spirit of his earlier movies, nor would they connect with audiences. Today, you can catch Brooks doing a number of voices on The Simpsons, produced by his friend and occasional work partner James L. Brooks, or doing voiceover work on animated movies like The Little Prince and The Secret Life of Pets but he has not been seen on screen since the 2015 Will Smith drama Concussion. And he's one of the few good things about Twitter. The impact of Albert Brooks on movies and television might not be as big as other filmmakers and actors, but two of his films are available from the Criterion Collection. Well, as I record this on March 25th, 2021, it's actually only one, Lost in America, 
But Defending Your Life will be released less than one week after I post this episode. So for 99.9% of this episode's life, it'll be two. So I'm sticking to it. And hopefully a few more of his films will be added to that list over time. If you want to catch his other films, they're rather easy to find. The Saturday Night Live shorts are available through NBC's Peacock streaming service, although you will need to be a paying subscriber to see them. We'll have a listing of the episodes you can catch them on, on this episode's page at FilmJerk.com. Real Life can be streamed for free through the Canopy streaming service, which many of us can access for free through our local library system. Or you can rent it for $2.99 from Amazon, Fandango Now, Google Play, and YouTube. Modern Romance can also be rented for $2.99 from Amazon, Fandango Now, and Vudu. Lost in American can be rented for $1.99 from Apple TV, Google Play, and YouTube. Defending Your Life can be streamed for free through HBO Max, or can be rented for $2.99 from Amazon, Apple TV, Fandango Now, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube. Mother can be streamed with a subscription through Fubo, or can be rented for $2.99 from Amazon, Fandango Now, Google Play, Redbox, Vudu, and YouTube. Looking for comedy in the Muslim world can be rented for $1.99 from Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and YouTube. These are all active as of March 2021. Thank you for listening. We will talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 